Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 177 being recorded on Friday, June 14th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, since good old episode 176, we have both been on the road. So uh, tonight we are going to mix it up a little bit and we're going to do... Uh, we're going to talk about some road trips. Uh, one of our favorite events every year is when the Mary Meeker mega deck of internet internet trends drops. So we have some thoughts on that. Uh, and then we put out a call for listener questions and the response was overwhelming. So we're going to try to chip away at those in this episode and then uh, save some for a future episode as well. Uh, so to kick it off, you are fresh off the plane from Code Recode. How was that show? Yeah, so that was fun. So this is a show that's put on by um, Co uh, Recode. It's their big event called Code. It, it's always been in California. For the first year, they moved it to Arizona, and they moved it a little later in the year. So that's unfortunate because you end up with 110-degree weather in Phoenix. Um, but I was excited to go because in the past, they've had some amazing guests. They've had uh, live interviews with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Uh, and it's the event every year where Mary Meeker um, delivers her state of the internet presentation. So I, I eagerly consume it every year, but this was going to be my first chance to, to watch her actually deliver it live. Um, and so it, it, was, it was a good show. Uh, I would say slightly unlucky. Every year has sort of a theme to the content. Um, and several of the themes have been very commerce oriented. Uh, and this theme to me was slightly less commerce oriented. There's a lot going on uh, with the big media companies and debates and arguments about uh, regulation and content moderation. And so the the conference spent a bunch of time focused on that, which is interesting to me, but maybe slightly less relevant than some of the, the previous years. So with that one caveat... Um, uh, I still found it to be uh, a, a, an entertaining and informative show. Um, and so it's it's like really put on by Kara Swisher. Um, and one of the, the things that makes it work so well is she's got this broad network and she gets a lot of A-list uh, speakers that come and get interviewed. And most of them get interviewed by one of the, the um, Rico journalists. And they, you know, they sit in these famous iconic red chairs. Uh, so things kicked off this year with... Uh, Susan uh, Wojcicki, who's the president of YouTube, and YouTube had just just had a big uh, internet kerfuffle over some new rules they had around content moderation, and uh, uh, so so she got kind of grilled on on their moderation policy, and uh, it made a ton of news because she she was not a super eloquent defender of their policy, um, and so she you know you could you could it was painful to watch. You could feel that she was nervous and she was struggling to answer some of the journalist questions and some of the audience questions. Um, and I, I feel like there was some uh, criticism of her in the news recaps of that interview. So, so uh, very newsworthy, um, not super focused on, on commerce. Um, the, the next one uh, to me was kind of interesting was uh, Matt uh, Labadich, who's the CEO at Harley Davidson. And uh, Scott, I, I was kind of excited for you. Um, this was apparently already well known, but I didn't know this, that a major initiative for Harley is Harley is making a, a huge investment in electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Their problem is millennials hate motorcycles. And uh, yeah, no young people buy and ride motorcycles. Yeah, so so their, half of, their theory is electric is going to solve that. I'm a little dubious. We'll see. Yeah, so he brought out... Um, like a, a mini version of one of their sort of electric bikes. Um, and half of his conversation was, you know, tough questions about Chinese tariffs. And obviously he's been a personal target of uh, President Trump. And so there was all, all those dialogues. But half of it was this whole like 
man, it is an electric bicycle in brand for Harley. And like, you know, when you think of the historic brand elements of Harley, like it's, you know, it is the, 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 the specific noise of the choppers and all these things. And now you've got this, this silent bike. And so it was interesting to hear Matt talk about how, how this, he felt this business would be additive and not d- disruptive to the brand. And, you know, he tried to pitch the fact that like, um, Hey, you don't get the signature sound of the Harley, but for the first time you can actually hear nature and have a conversation with someone while you're, while you're, uh, out on a ride and, and stuff like that. So it was, it was an interesting try, uh, per, uh, similar to you, I'd say the, the jury seemed out. Um, the next interesting interview, uh, they had a couple of folks from Facebook. They had, uh, uh, Adam, uh, Missourio, who, uh, is the new CEO of Instagram. He, he's, a um, he's run a bunch of big businesses at Facebook and took over Instagram when the founders left. Um, and then Andrew Boz Bosworth, who's like owns the devices and the virtual reality, um, practice at Facebook. And, uh, you know, again, they, they were getting grilled a lot on, uh, on, uh, regulation and, and, uh, you know, potential antitrust actions, um, but intermixed in there, Adam was talking a lot about the future of Instagram being commerce and he didn't get into a lot of specific examples. Um, but we have seen them, you know, Instagram aggressively roll out new commerce features pretty regularly. Uh, and he gave the strong impression that they're not done and there's more to come there. Um, uh, Boz did not reveal a lot on the device side, you know, uh, obviously they're, they're, um, they're still very bullish on, on all the VR stuff. Uh, they did launch this like in-home video chat system called the Facebook portal. And I, I was quite curious to you know hear if they would claim some market penetration success with that product. And they, they, they refused to talk about how well it had sold, which made me skeptical that it has sold very well. Cause obviously there's a lot of people that think Facebook has a fundamental trust problem and people probably don't want to buy a camera and a recorder to put in their living room from Facebook. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, he didn't necessarily do anything to dispel that, that perception. Uh, so then they had a couple folks on from Twitter, uh, Kayvon, uh, and I'm, I'm massacring all these names, I'm sure. Uh, Bakalpur, um, who is in charge of product at Twitter. And then Vijaya... Uh, Cattle, who's the chief legal counsel for Twitter. And again, uh, you know, Twitter has gotten slightly less heat than some of the others, but they were really getting grilled on their moderation policy. And so most of the dialogue was dominated by Vijaya. Um, and I, I would say, uh, at the very least, she seemed like a much more polished spokeswoman for where what their position is. Um, and she, she held their own against the questions uh, really well. Um, we didn't get a lot of super interesting things about the direction Twitter's going in from a product standpoint. Um, the, the one thing that Kayvon, you know, expressed that he was excited for in the future of Twitter's functionality um, is really uh, exploring more um, discovery by topics instead of by people. So, you know, he, you know, obviously on Twitter, the primary methodology is you follow people and have, uh, you know, and your, your feed is developed based on the people you follow. Um, you know, there is a rudimentary hashtag system, but it's harder to follow specific topics. Um, and so it sounds like they have some, some features in the word works to, to sort of bubble up topics more on Twitter and, and help you follow them. Uh, Andy Jassy, who runs the AWS business for Amazon. Um, he, he was certainly interesting again, you know, he was mostly answering questions about why they shouldn't spin AWS off. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure he had a super credible argument for why they should. Um, you can get all kinds of debates about, about uh, why they should or shouldn't. But, um, uh, it, it was interesting, like talking, like, you know, he got asked a lot about the, the evolution of competitors, most notably Microsoft and, and Google. Um, and it was interesting to hear, you know, they, they, they sort of have this huge six year head start. Uh, and he talked about when they were first launching the product, how they were, you know, they felt like they're in Seattle that at the very least Microsoft would quickly respond after they lost a service. And so they were super eager to keep the service kind of 
secret until this first launch so that they would have a little bit of a head start on Microsoft. And he's like, never in my wildest dreams did we think we'd get to market and have the market to ourselves for six years before Microsoft really, really uh, came back with a product. And I, 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 it reminded me of this uh, famous uh, Warren Buffett quote that Jeff Bezos probably isn't the guy you want to give a six-year head start to. Um, but, you know, so he was saying as a result of that, like he, he feels like AWS has two fundamental advantages over their competitors in the market. He feels like they have many more services than any of the other platforms. And so they're, they're more comprehensive. Um, and he feels like, uh, obviously they have a much bigger market share than any of the competitors. And he feels like that market share translates to scale, which translates to lower costs. So he feels like they have a, a fundamental cost advantage over, over Google and Microsoft. So that, that was kind of interesting. Um, in some ways, the headline interview of the whole thing was uh, Stacey Abrams, who ran for uh, just, just lost a gubernatorial race in Atlanta. Um, not super relevant to our, uh, our listeners, I don't think. Um, but they had a conversation with her. Uh, and then Mary Meeker did come out. She's changed companies. I think she used to be with Kleiner Perkins, if I'm remembering right. She's now with a new venture capital company called Bond. Um, but I was happy to see that the, the state of the internet report, uh, you know, seems, um, like it, it has strong continuity and didn't really lose anything. Uh, 333 slides. We'll talk about it, uh, in a second. So, and she delivers it in 40 minutes. So, uh, it's a super fast thing and she keeps highlighting the fact that the report's meant to be read, not presented, um, and so it was fun to hear her deliver it for the first time. I think there's some interesting things that you and I both pulled out of that. Um, this is getting super long. They had uh, David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. The thing I was interested in with him is he has this uh, credit card partnership with Apple. Um, and we haven't gotten a ton of details about it yet. But he said that a lot of Goldman Sachs and Apple employees are currently carrying the credit card in the beta. Um, and that they're they're super excited and they feel like like the credit card has a lot of utilities and amenities that customers like that previous credit cards haven't had. So I'll, I'll be eager to learn more about that. Um, the next speaker was by my, by far my favorite of the show and probably to most people, the, the least impressive speaker. Uh, it was this entrepreneur, uh, named Richard Browning, who's, uh, with a company called gravity. Um, and Richard and his buddies decided that they wanted to build their own jetpack, And so he showed this really cool, sort of uh, making a video of like him out on the farm with this first mini jet engine that he strapped to his arm and, and uh, you know, tried to figure out if it could lift him off the ground. And, you, and he shows this evolution of putting more jets on his body and, you know, falling and wiping out spectacularly and all these sorts of things. Um, but the culmination of all this is he has built a jet pack uh, that essentially lets a uh, a person fly for like 20 minutes and it's, it's very Iron Man esque. Um, and so he, he's talking about it and showing a video and the, the monetization model for this is really, it's kind of a, a novelty entertainment thing. Like you might go to a race and watch people race the jetpacks around a course over a lake. Um, I think is the model, but what was super cool is after his speech, uh, we had a coffee break. We all step outside in the 110 degree heat and uh, Richard flies in in the jet suit, so we all got to got to see him uh, flying around live, like only a few feet from us, and it was uh, totally legit and and pretty cool from a as a, a sort of a technology geek standpoint. That was definitely the coolest thing of the show. Um, and so then, just a couple more to wrap it up. Uh, uh, Cindy Holland, who's uh, head of original content at Netflix. Um, Obviously, we you know we both are fans of a bunch of the content. Not super content relevant, but what was super relevant is Cindy's previous experience to Netflix. Um, is she was with Cosmo, the uh, the the one of the original uh, e-commerce grocery delivery companies. So I thought that was a funny background. Um, and then uh, our friend Scott Galloway, uh, you know, who does a podcast with Kara Swisher, he came out and did his. Uh, presentation, which is always well received. He's a really good presenter. Um, you know, the inside baseball thing is he writes this great content every year for a show in Europe called DLD, which is in January. And so he did this content in January and it was kind of 
recap of his 2018 predictions and his and what his 2019 predictions are and they're both some some you know clever insightful stuff in there and some you know funny silly stuff in there um but you know if i were to uh if you're an insider and you've seen it a bunch of times he did the exact same content and it seems kind of weird to be making 2019 predictions and recapping your 2018 predictions in july um so that was maybe a little goofy uh and then last two things, uh, Ev Williams, who's the CEO of Medium, was on. He's also one of the founder of Twitter. Again, not super relevant to us, but he's an interesting personality that has some thoughtful things to say. Uh, and then one bit of news that I was some, that's very relevant to our listeners, uh, a former guest of the show and a journalist that uh, covers our industry, Jason Delray, for, uh, who's the commerce um, reporter at, at uh, Recode. Uh, announced that he would be releasing a new podcast this year. It's a series called Land of the Giants. And the idea is each season, they're going to cover one of the FANG companies. So uh, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google. Um, and the first season is Amazon. So he's the host. Uh, it's a narrative podcast. So it's a bunch of live interviews with people talking about Amazon. And it's going to be eight episodes. And it's going to release in... Uh, in July. So uh, obviously the podcast that you need to be listening to first and foremost is the one you're listening to, but that would be, you know, another good one to check out. And I got to hear an advanced preview and it sounded pretty cool. So that's my super long winded, uh, recap of the code commerce this year. Conference. Very cool. The, uh, did you know, Susan Wojcicki, uh, a couple of fun facts. Her garage is where Google was started. Did you know that? I did not. I knew she was one of the, the early Googlers. Yeah. And her sister married Sergey Brin and then they divorced after. Um, so they're no longer together, but, but she, the sister was married to Sergey for a while. Uh, and then uh, her sister is the CEO and founder of 23andMe. Wow. So, I so totally two very Google entangled entrepreneurial women. I feel like you are the perfect host for the People Magazine segment on on the Jason and Scott show now. I love it. Yeah, and they were last seen dating. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. And then uh, it seemed like so. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch these shows from Twitter and then hear you. You know, the the theme I was kind of getting over Twitter was you know monopolies break these guys up. The politicians are coming for them. It was definitely kind of you know. So, so I know Kara has talked a lot about that. Galloway's been, you know, since he released the four or whatever that's called, he's been really big on it. And it seemed like that was the ultimate theme. And it's always funny to me, like the, the tech people seem like so shocked by all that. And they don't really have prepared answers. Like how, how could you not know that was coming? I don't know. Seems yeah. yeah. It felt like they were more prepared now. That's why like the YouTube one was a little bit of an outliner, like given her seniority and role, like I, you just would have expected her to be totally buttoned up and nailed it. And, and I, I mean this in a complimentary way. She she just felt more like a real person who is like struggling with it and just kind of admitting that like, look, we don't have it all figured out and we're we're pissing people off and we feel bad about it. But you know, um, they they definitely held her her feet to the fire and that that was absolutely the big takeaway. Like, not even so much should we split them all up and should we regulate them. The the biggest takeaway is they all have a content moderation problem and nobody's figured out how to do content moderation at scale. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all worried. There's a, there's a section of the law that protects them from being publishers and they're all worried. The more content moderation they do, the more they're really kind of doing editorial. And then will they still be able to live under that section of law that, that effectively indemnifies them from, you know, all these issues. So absolutely. Interesting to watch. Shout out to former guest Sucharita Mulpuru who beats that drum regularly on Twitter. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so one other note there. Uh, so they th this show they've been putting on forever. It's their marquee event. Um, they have now launched some smaller commerce specific events. They they have like a dinner at a lot of the sh the shop talk events, and you and I have attended a bunch of those. And then they have a standalone commerce conference, which is a, a two day conference in New York, and that's coming up again this September. So that maybe an event to have on your radar screen. Very cool. Cool. While you were enjoying the quote unquote dry heat of Phoenix, uh, I was in New York and it was beautiful weather there. It was not 110 degrees. So that was good. Um, and then I got to knock uh, something off the bucket list. I got to go to my first Amazon Go store. I feel like the universe has been trying to keep me out of there because 
Uh, last time you and I were in Chicago, we tried to run by and it had just closed like two minutes before I got there. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear, I know you've obviously thought and talked a lot about it, but we, but uh, I'm excited to hear what, what your impressions were from actually being in one. So it's kind of interesting. If it was in North Carolina, it would be really exciting because we don't have a convenience store like that. But when it's in New York and it's next to kind of the Pret and the Dean and DeLuca and those kind of places, it, it's not as kind of outstanding. Um, I would say those, you know, from a selection and food quality, I, I would say those stores are better. Um, it is kind of novel to do the, the just walk in and out, uh, just walk out technology thing. I was a little surprised. I was expecting that I could watch the app and put stuff in a bag and watch it kind of go into my cart. Um, there was none of that real time kind of stuff. And in fact, I was surprised. Uh, I don't know if this is normal or not, but it, it took about eight hours for my checkout to complete. And I was starting to get concerned. Like, you know, I feel like maybe I ended up in human review or something. That's I, interesting. I, I did go with my daughter and she was like, she just shopped in there as a, she, you know, she wasn't really expecting anything and she was like handing me a bunch of stuff and I, I didn't yeah, know what the rules were. Did scan in separately from you or did you scan both I, of you in on, on your... both in because it seemed yeah. like, yeah, she doesn't have the, she's too young to have payment stuff on her phone. Sure. That, uh, that is a, um, uh, a challenging use case for them as groups of shoppers, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like we did something to kind of trigger it, but, oh, and then she was like putting stuff up and back and I kind of felt bad. <laughs> she, she gave it a workout, um, uh, unbeknownst to, it wasn't purposeful or anything, but it was interesting. Um, and the, you know, the things we did have were really good and the, um, you know, it, it was funny. It was very crowded. Uh, and then there was a lot of confusion about how it kind of worked. Like, especially, um, if you needed like forks and knives and stuff like that, it was kind of hard to find, but people ultimately figured it out. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I would argue like, so I got a chance to go in the beta before it was open to the public. And I would have said that, uh, I swear in the beta, it felt like everything got updated in the app in real time. But since the stores have opened to the public, uh, you do get a, a receipt after you leave the store. And in general, I would say it's kind of in that 10 to 15 minutes afterwards. So your experience to me is an outlier, but, uh, but, uh, you definitely don't have the, the real time thing. And the, but there was in you went to the newest go you know, that just opened in New York. Like I, you were there the week it opened, I think, which is the second one in New York. And there's a super important new amenity in that store. I want to hear about. Yeah, sadly, I went to the old one, the quote unquote oh. old one. Yeah, um, it wasn't an interesting part of town. I hadn't spent a lot of time in is kind of way downtown called Brookfield Place, which was a lot like, um, you know, uh, it, you know, had a lot of the. D and V B stores and all that kind of vibe going. So that was interesting. Uh, it was a lot like Hudson Yard, I was gonna say. Um we uh, actually mentioned that in the Hudson Yard episode if you listened to it. Oh yeah, I remember it well. Uh, <laughs> uh but yes, uh, just right after I left, they opened the second Amazon Go store. Again, the universe kind of uh sticking out its tongue at me. Uh and that one has espresso and coffee drinks. So now I have a valid excuse to try to go to that one. I'm I'm excited to see, you know, is if it's gonna be a robot or a person or how that's gonna work. And how it compares to our favorite Starbucks. Yeah, I have a um, a New York trip. I think the first week in July, so I'll be uh, uh, I'll definitely make a chance uh, a point of testing out their their espresso service. Cool. Two other quick ones. Uh, went back to Glossier. Uh, I have discovered when you have teenage girls, they love to go to Glossier. So uh, it's kind of funny. The dads all st- sitting there kind of looking at each other like, what's going on? Uh, and we're all in there for like two hours as the ladies try out all the different colors and flavors and shades and stuff. So they um, do have kind of comfortable man chairs. Did you find a man chair? I did. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was good. Um, it's just kind of fun to watch. Just it's got like a vibe and energy to it. That's really cool. I would definitely recommend it to listeners. Just go check that out. Um, and then, uh, as per my co-host recommendation, went to this really neat uh, place called Showfields. Uh, this is a lot like Beta. It's a, one of these kind of marketplace stores. Um, found that fun. It had a lot of fun interactive things, so you could like jump on this pile of pillows to try them out, and it had a slide to go between floors that we enjoyed. Um, so it was a lot of fun. It, it felt like uneconomical to me, you know, so, so this was, this was New York city real estate. And there's kind of like four things on each floor of a very big building that, and the space wasn't like, you know, there there wasn't a lot of crowded space there. It felt like a lot of retail space for not a lot of stuff. So I'm not sure how that model is going to work long term. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, one side note on the Amazon Go, there was there's an interesting article that came out this week, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember who wrote it, so I'll, I'll find a link and put it in the show notes. But it was kind of talking about how uh, early on Bezos said he uh, uh, that he would only do physical retail if you could come up with an interesting concept. And then this article goes on to critique a lot of the the Amazon retail concepts as not being very interesting. So it you know talks about like the bookstore and the the four star store um, being fairly generic. And then it, it called out Amazon go as the one novel concept. And what, uh, you could, there's things you could debate for and against that argument. But, uh, the dialogue on Twitter about the article was a, a lot of people pointing out that it, Amazon go may be the, the, the least interesting of all of them because it, you know, it is a basic convenience store or, you know, a, a, a grab and go sandwich store. Um, and it's it's marquee feature is that you don't have to pay when you leave, so there there's less labor in the store. But then everyone on Twitter points out that like there's way more people working in that store than work at any Seven Eleven or or uh, Obopon in the country. So like they like despite the technology, they haven't actually got the headcounts down in those stores yet. Yeah, I think it's a work in progress. I think they'll get there. Yeah, I in Arizona uh, at the Fashion Show Place Mall. Uh, I did stumble across a new Amazon retail concept. There's the one and only uh, Ring store in in the mall there. Did that predate the acquisition? Is it kind of a vestigial tale? It does not. It does clearly look like it was built like by that business unit and not by Amazon. It's a perfectly nice store, um, but it it doesn't leverage any of the same fixtures or or sort of common elements from the other stores. Um, it looks like it was built by the Ring team, and apparently they used to have a pop up. And they migrated to this permanent store. Um, and but uh, you know, I just find it interesting. There's probably not that many doorbell stores in in the world, and so this this may be the only one. Very cool. And then uh, I feel like you and I both had FOMO um, because the show that ended up being better than where we were was Remars. And this is um, Jeff Bezos has held this kind of private robot kind of a thing talking about space and things like that. Uh, and now they've opened it up more. Um, did you get to see some of the the activities there? I did. And so they do have, the, they still have this like super exclusive show that like is invite only, but then Remar is an intent to take the content from that super exclusive show and make it available to a, a broader audience. Um, and because it's called Mars, I, erroneously assumed it was predominantly focused on space, but Mars is an acronym. Um, and I think it's like uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence and robotics. Uh, I probably have that wrong, but that worked. Um, and so uh, it seemed like there was a lot of super interesting content. And I've talked to a couple of folks that attended uh, and uh, I definitely regret not having worked it into my schedule. Uh, did you see any key takeaways that excited you? There were some, some really cool demos and just forward thinking things. Um, that's where, uh, let's see, that's where they announced Robert Downey Jr. announced that he's going to save the planet. So that's good. Finally. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yep. So leave it up to Tony Stark. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Bezos was there and, uh, and, uh, uh, delivered some content himself as well. Yeah. The only thing, the, all the, unfortunately, all the press was about some someone kind of got cl- close to him. Uh, a uh, a protester got like within two feet of him on stage, and I think that freaked everyone out. So <laughs> that's all. You know, it seemed to just kind of take over the whole conference. That that one of that episode. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I feel like there had been a couple of political things earlier where someone came on stage and the like. None of the politicians had good security, but uh, at Remars they apparently had excellent security. And got got uh, wrapped up and exited very quickly. Yeah, they were like white on rice with that dude. Exactly. So way way easier to grab a mic from a presidential candidate than the world's richest man. It turns out. Uh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we have both waded through the 333-page Mary Meeker uh, Internet Trends uh, deck. Uh, I thought I would go through a couple highlights. So I always enjoy the deck, and it, it's kind of interesting just kind of get a feel for what Meeker um, is seeing. Her, her new firm, um, by the way, is it's her starting the firm, so she's like the principal now. So she was kind of a general partner uh 
at the last firm. And then this is her new firm that she started. So, um, and you know, they, they, they came on the scene. I think she came out with like a $3 billion raise or something pretty impressive. So, so, uh, she's got a lot of heft behind her now. Um, but a couple of my highlights. Uh, so for listeners, it's going to help you if you have the deck open right now. So I'll wait for you. Hopefully you're not in your car, because uh, we don't want you to get in a wreck. So you, you can review this. Or on the treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> if you're on the treadmill with an iPad, it's probably doable. It's going to be hard on your phone. Um, but just to, you know, and we'll put this in the show notes so you can go reference it later. Uh, but, you know, the as a guy that's his trying his first consumer oriented company, I, I kind of look at it through that lens mostly. Um, so, you know, all the stuff about, yeah, what half the people on the planet are on the internet and it's slowing down. All that's not new, new news. So there's wasn't much there. Um, I did like kind of the presentation from slides 29 to 35. And it kind of starts out with this story of if, if you're, you know, CAC LTV, um, if you're out there buying traffic is going to be challenging. Um, and this is, we're seeing this with like the digital native vertical brands where they kind of get to this hundred dollar online kind of sales rate. Um, and then they plateau out and it's because you just can't buy enough traffic at that point to, to, to move the needle. Um, and that's why many of them open stores. Uh, and it talked about a much better Then it kind of transitions into just some data and supporting evidence that, that, a better way to build a business than buying traffic is happy customers. Um, so I spend all day thinking about this. So it was good to kind of see some of that data and I plan on, on using a lot of it. And, you know, as I talk internally about some of those things, um, uh, uh, a longtime listener, Parker Block pointed out on slide 50 that uh, the Jason Scott show is not on the top 10 podcasts, sadly. So I don't know. I don't know when we dropped off there, Jason. Um, that's kind of a bummer. I think it's just the summer lull. I'm sure we'll be back up by the we'll, end of the summer. We'll be back next year. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought you would be excited on slide 51. Uh, they had some good data on the Echo. Um, um, that's that CIRP data. You and I are always looking at that a little suspiciously. The, the CIRP data seems to be, it's always a little bit higher than we kind of think it's going to be. Um, but it showed the Echo doubling in the last two years, I believe, which was it had like around 50 million echoes out there. Um, that was a larger number than I, I think I was expecting. Um, and then uh, slide 53, again, kind of in my wheelhouse with what I'm building right now, um, there's 56 million consumers kind of in the on-demand economy. So I thought that was good. And that's grown more than 2x in the last two years. Um, and then probably the newest new thing I saw in there, a lot of this was just kind of restating and representing a lot of data in an interesting new way. Mary Meeker is really good at telling a story. So I've, I've always learned a lot from her about, about how to tie that together. Um, but there was this set of international companies and I have to admit all these were new to me. So uh, it's, and uh, so these were, some of them were Chinese, like the first couple, like Pion, Duo, Duo, Matuan, Dianping. Uh, and then uh, it's kind of a tour of the world. There's one called Rappi Tokopedia from Indonesia, uh, this was an interesting one called Shopee, S-O-H-P-E-E, -E, uh, which evidently has $10 billion with a GMV flowing through it. A little suspicious about that, but I, I kind of made a mental note to go check that out. That's out of Southeast Asia. Uh, and then one called Reliance Geo. So there's these really interesting new models out there um, in the globe, you know, kind of different ways to connect um, B2B buyers and sellers, different ways for marketplaces to be born, different ways for content, new mega apps that, that kind of combine all kinds of stuff. Um, and then my last point is I, I always kind of make a mental note as I go through a deck and kind of certain companies tend to get like one mention and other ones will get 10. Uh, and I kind of you know call them Meeker's favorites. So her favorites, as best I could tell from this deck, are Spotify and Zoom. Um, so she spent a lot of time talking about those two companies. And if she was going to talk about personalization, she would talk about Spotify. When she talked about happy customers, the best way to grow your business, um, you know, the Zoom founder is kind of famous for saying all the other um, conferencing software out there just pretty much stinks. And we just focused relentlessly on making it flawless and getting rid of the having to download the little you know, I call them little turds that you have to download if you're going to use GoToMeeting or those things. Those things never work. Um, so they, you know, so so those were the two companies that she seemed really enamored with right now. Those were the highlights I picked up. Nice, yeah, yeah. So I think you hit a lot of the things that jumped out at me. Um, like a nuance on the happy customers. Uh, one of the things uh, she talked about is uh, effective customer acquisition strategies, and she was really highlighting. 
the freemium or trial um, as the best path to customer acquisition and most cost-effective, sustainable path. And like, you know, there's even a knock that like these companies that try to grow by like buying eyeballs on social media, you know, is a is a self-limiting strategy. But these companies that are growing by like offering a a freemium model and then upgrading people to a paid service are really strong. And so Zoom and Spotify were both like marquee examples of companies that leveraged that that freemium model for customer acquisition. Um, so she was she was strongly endorsing that business model. Uh, fun fact for listeners: uh, Scott and I, uh, uh, quite some time ago now, moved from from Skype to Zoom for our virtual voice for recording this show. So, so uh, we have a slight uh, little connection there. But she made a funny joke. Uh, there's also a section about how big gaming is getting um, and how Fortnite continues to dominate uh, in terms of minutes and. Uh, uh, Another area she talked about Zoom was the growth of remote workers. Um, and so she postulated, you know, some future where we're all remote workers spending our our, uh, our daytime hours in Zoom and our nighttime hours in Fortnite might be the the evolution of humanity, which seemed a little sad. But uh, um, I do like some Fortnite, so I'm okay with a minor version of that, I guess. Um, so though, uh, I thought that, that stuff was all interesting. And then if I were to try to... Um, wrap up the the international mobile app she she highlighted like th- there were two big themes uh in every geography delivery um and same day delivery is getting digitized so a lot of these services were around uh getting packages and purchases to you same day and then in a lot of the digitally less mature markets like India um it's the emergence of a local super app um, along the lines of what I think of as uh, WeChat in China. So, you know, in a bunch of these markets, they're not buying the the Android uh, operating system that comes with the Play um, Store or iOS devices that come with, um, with the Apple App Store. And so uh, instead of downloading all your apps from some, some uh, uh, service, these super apps have emerged that have sort of like mini apps that plug in. And that's essentially WeChat is in a way like a, an operating system for these apps in China. And, it, and she highlighted uh, some other ones in other parts of Asia and India that I had never heard of, but you know, seem to be uh, emerging following that model, which as she said, it made perfect sense. Yeah, very cool. So we definitely recommend, you know, I think if you're in this industry, you need to have this guy on your laptop somewhere and have a pretty good working knowledge of it because, you know, the you never know when you're going to need to whip some of these stats out and say, did you know that this many people are on the internet and they spend this much time? And uh, there was some good e-commerce stats on there. Nothing really earth-shaking, so that's why we didn't really cover them. But, you know, I think it's just really good to have a working knowledge of that deck because it, it does it is foundational data that we need to kind of know in our day to day jobs. Cool. With that, it was kind of a slow news week, so we're going to cover news next week. And so we put out a call for listener questions, and we got a resounding response. So we've got over 20 questions to go through, uh, which we're not going to be able to do tonight. Um, but we're going to do for the next 20 minutes or so, so we're going to kind of see how many of these we can get through. Um, <clears throat> all right. So I'll kick it off. The first question comes from Perry Solomon on Facebook. What do you project the effect of the FedEx contract termination to be? This especially applies to 3P merchants using FedEx for SFP question mark. Yeah. Uh, and I should caveat all these answers uh, to make the show feel more authentic. I didn't pre-read or prepare for these questions at all. Um, so I, uh, so uh, take my answers with a grain of salt. Um, I don't think uh, so. Uh, just to recap for listeners, uh, Amazon delivers a lot of their own packages. They pay the U S post office to deliver uh, a ton of packages. They pay UPS to deliver uh, like the third most packages and they pay FedEx for the smallest amount of their packages. So FedEx is their smallest, the smallest piece of their delivery network. Um, and FedEx chose not to renew their contract with Amazon. Um, and so, you know, next year you won't be getting any FedEx packages uh, from, from Amazon uh, uh, as, as the delivery vehicle. Um, so the reason I suspect they did that is, as I've talked about a lot on the show, um, 
demand for package delivery is far outpacing capacity. So FedEx isn't growing as fast as demand is growing. So they have a constrained resource, how many packages they can deliver. And when they sell that capacity to the biggest consumer out there in Amazon, Amazon has all the leverage and gets to negotiate a great rate. Um, and I, I think FedEx felt like, uh, hey, we uh, we can sell the same capacity to other people in the e-commerce ecosystem and, you know, frankly, charge more and get more. Um, and so I think it's it's really a matter of Amazon monetizing uh, or Facebook doing the or gosh, FedEx doing the best job they can to monetize their capability. Uh, as FedEx always points out, there's uh, Amazon's a small percentage of their overall business. So it's like 1.3% of FedEx deliveries. So this is not a disaster for FedEx. Um, so that's the long winded recap. Perry's specific question is, Hey, if you're a three P seller on Amazon and you were fil- fulfilling packages via FedEx, how does that affect you? Um, and I, I sort of have two answers. Uh, if, if you are owning the fulfillment yourself, you can still use FedEx and it probably doesn't affect you because you were negotiating those rates with FedEx yourself. You weren't leveraging some pre-negotiated rate, uh, from, from FedEx. So I, I suspect FedEx is still happy to fulfill those packages for you. Um, and things won't really change. Um, if you are using FBA to deliver your packages, your packages are no longer going to get delivered by, by FedEx, but that will mostly be, or, or that'll be a hundred percent be transparent to you. Um, and you know, uh, it sounds like you're already a seller, so you may be more familiar with this. But in general, it's pretty tough to make a living as a three P seller on Amazon without using FBA. You have to be in a in a pretty niche category that's not super competitive to have success. And so, for most three P sellers, they're using FBA, and and therefore Amazon's picking the carrier, not you. Anything I missed there, Scott? Yeah. So uh, one of the nuances in Perry's question is he talks about SFP. So so there's this this interesting middle program. So so Jason, you talked about you're a third party shipping yourself uh, and they're using Prime. There's a middle program called SFP and it's called Seller Fulfilled Prime. And that's where you're essentially saying, I will use my own fulfillment center and I will live up to the Prime promise. As As part of that, you do have to put all of your shippings on out of your facility onto uh, Amazon's uh, effectively within their Amazon relationships with the carriers. So, so that will re- affect the SFP people because you're not going to have FedEx coming to pick those up anymore. Um, now, inside of that same fulfillment center, you can you can also do native shipments, which you may be doing for other channels or your website or whatnot. And of course, you're still free to use FedEx for those if you want to. But if you do have certain things designated at SFP, those you know will not be going um, through this mechanism. The other nuance is, um, you know, there's the uh, FedEx does a lot of international carrier carrying cross border trade stuff for Amazon. That relationship is still in place. And then um, there's also a lot of ground stuff. So ground is a program. Uh, we all think of it as kind of like being five day, but you can actually go two day on a lot of ground within, you know, kind of on the same coast and even into the Midwest sometimes. So, so FedEx has tweaked up that ground program where, uh, it, it's it's almost within the prime promise for a lot of stuff. So there is still a ground relationship between uh, FedEx and Amazon. So I, I imagine Amazon will still use some of that for really short stuff where they don't have a, um, you know, this, this, their own delivery kind of a network going. So, you know, it, it is interesting. The, the bigger theme I think that's really fascinating here is, you know, this, as Amazon builds this out, uh, we, I have long predicted, and Jason, I, I think you're on board with this, you know, this Amazon playbook is pretty well known now, you know, so test it. Um, if it works, you know, test it, figure out the model, um, get the cost down, scale it while you're dog fooding it. And then the third page of the playbook, which is what always blows people's mind is you've developed the super secret proprietary thing. That's awesome. Um, now open it up. And that's the part that there's not really a good physical analog for and usually blows like traditional retailers' minds. It's the equivalent of 
putting a target in the corner of a Walmart, right? You would, you would never do that in the real world, but Amazon, it's just page three of the playbook. They, they just do it all the time. And, you know, there's so many case studies, it's kind of obvious now. So AWS is the same, it was born this way, FBA, even the marketplace. So, so those are three case studies. So it's 100% clear to me that if I'm Amazon and I build out all this delivery, I open it up and I effectively compete directly with UPS and FedEx. And by that, what I mean is Jason could ship you know, a package to me here in North Carolina and, you know, Amazon, the e-commerce company, not involved at all. And he could probably, you know, um, hand it to an Amazon driver and say, I would like to deliver this to North Carolina. He'll go online, print out some postage and it'll be like $2 because that package is going to ride along this huge infrastructure where all the fixed costs has already been implemented. And if Jason was to FedEx that to me, it would be eight or $12. So, so I think the, carriers have finally woken up and they're like, oh boy, this could be a pretty serious problem for for us. I need to focus on getting ready for that and shipping packages for Amazon doesn't really help help me get there. Um, well, when that happens, I do think UPS is going to be a much worse position because well over the, the public data is 10%. I look in the back of a lot of UPS trucks and I have not looked in a UPS truck in the last year that doesn't have over half Amazon packages. So that may just be me, <laughs> but you know, I, I think UPS is going to be in a really interesting place when, you know, the death knell is, Hey, UPS, we don't need you anymore. And we're competing with you. That that's going to be a really tough day when, when that happens. No, no, no. Great point. And you've been beating that drum for a while. I, I feel like this is the year it, it, it like the, 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 players have kind of become public, like both Amazon listed shipping as a business they compete in, um, in, in, uh, their, their, uh, financial reporting. And, and I think in their annual, um, uh, shareholder meetings, like, uh, both FedEx and UPS had to acknowledge potential competition from, from UPS sort of affirming what you said. Uh, side note, I'm looking in the back of the UPS trucks. One thing that gets a lot of people is, FedEx and UPS built their business to deliver packages to other businesses. So they're, they're optimized for business to business and they, they, uh, they're much, uh, weaker at delivering to residential addresses. And a couple of reasons that's interesting is Amazon's built its infrastructure to deliver to residential addresses. So it, it, it can have some significant competitive advantages there. Um, and so if they offer their own service, like you, you can imagine that the place they'll be strongest is in residential address delivery. There's also huge opportunities and challenges in e-commerce in reverse logistics and returning packages and doing real-time trials and all these things. And you could imagine that uh, Amazon owning their own uh, 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 delivery vehicles and uh, infrastructure, they could have some unique offerings there that we've never seen uh, UPS or FedEx uh, try, try to offer. It's actually quite a pain to get a UPS or FedEx driver to your residence to pick up a package that you decided you didn't want. Um, but I suspect that might have something to do with the, the skewed packages in the backs of the trucks you're looking in. If you're looking at a truck in a residential neighborhood, it probably does have a lot more, uh, Amazon packages. But if you were working in a, you know, a big, big high rise office building, you'd probably see a lot of FedEx trucks that are delivering fewer Amazon packages. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Uh, Question two also comes from Facebook, and this is from longtime listener Danny Sheridan. Uh, if a brand is ready to partner with an Amazon channel consultant, how do they tend to find each other? Is the industry growing or shrinking from your point of view? Interesting. Um, so I feel like it's a, a, it's a little bifurcated. Uh, there's a lot of folks that uh, are relatively small businesses that are uh, trying to sell on Amazon uh, and, you know, at some stage in their growth, they might need some help. Um, and so they're looking for pretty small providers or folks that can cost effectively help, a, you know, like often a six figure business, uh, potentially not even a seven figure business. So there's a lot of independent contractors that are focused on, on helping the, the long tail of three P sellers. Um, increasingly Amazon's an important distribution channel for the really big players and so you see uh, a lot of the the agencies like my own, frankly, uh, bulking up their Amazon capabilities to help their big clients like the Proctors and Gambles and Unilevers and Smuckers of the world have a better presence on Amazon. So I, I think you sh you're seeing both. I think you're seeing um, 
big consultancies and agencies uh, adding dedicated Amazon practices that are targeted at those enterprise clients. And you're seeing um, an increase in the consultants that help the long tail. Um, and in terms of how they find them, uh, I think there's a couple ways there, there are some good consultants that are on the speaking circuit and that, you know, uh, do a lot of, uh, offer a lot of free content on how to sell on Amazon and they get their name out and get found that way. Um, a number of them have written books. So like I, I, if you do a search on Amazon on how to sell on Amazon, um, you'll see there's a vibrant uh, set of books and those authors all tend to be consultants uh, in that space. Um, and then there are uh, a couple of uh, trade shows that focus a lot on Amazon sellers. And uh, so one community that I, I try to participate in is uh, this community called e-commerce fuel. It's a bunch of, uh, mostly seven figure sale sellers. So, you know, people that are selling between one and $10 million of stuff. Um, about half of them use Amazon as their primary uh, vehicle. The other half try to sell direct, uh, and probably have some Amazon presence. And so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of sort of the consultants that like emerge and market themselves to those kind of communities. Any, any other tips you have, Scott? It, it's kind of starting to feel a little bit like the SEO world where you've got some local people now, you've got some regional players, and then you've got some national and agencies that a lot of it, you know, a lot of choosing the right consultant is, are you a brand a retailer? Um, how big are you? Um, how much Amazon experience do you have? Uh, and then, you know, where I'm seeing the most activity is around the Amazon ads. And we have a bunch of questions coming up around the Amazon ad network. Uh, and this is where there's just, you know, this frenzy of activity around Amazon's ads. So, so on the Amazon side, they're releasing new units, they're releasing new APIs. There's a lot going on there. Um, we've talked on the show about how rapidly that's growing. Um, and then there, there's a similarly large number of agency type people that are kind of like, you know, coming in from the SEO PPC world, kind of in a feeding frenzy on that. Um, I do know on the software side, so, so the company I started, Channel Advisor, we're not really a consultant. Um, we're really a software company. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do believe there's an area for, uh, we're not included in this, uh, I don't believe, because we're not we're not um, online sign up kind of a thing. Um, but if you are a software company, I do believe within Seller Central, there's a little marketplace. So this is the kind of thing where I think at some point, Amazon needs to step in and say, Hey, here's, uh, and, and Google's done a great job with this. Um, you probably know all their programs better than I do, Jason, but they have, you know, these, these tierings. They say, you know, this company is a Google certified AdWords platinum company. And what that means is, you know, they've been through this certified Google training. They're using the APIs. They support all the big initiatives and, and these kinds of things. I would, I see Amazon kind of uh, eventually doing that. Um, you know, it's essentially a marketplace and Amazon's got like a thousand little marketplaces all throughout there. They've got all the app stores and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think we'll see them normalize that. Um, now it is interesting, um, you know, all the ad companies, so Google, Facebook, et cetera, they've always gone through these oscillations for how they treat third parties trying to get between them and their customers. <laughs> um, Amazon's not known just generally for, for really caring for that. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of goes to this cycle where in the early days, they're like, we love agencies. So yeah, they help us. And then over time, as growth slows, they start to say, hmm, how could we get more margin? Let's cut all these agencies out. Um, so you see kind of Facebook, Google, uh, and those kind of more mature platforms kind of in, in that cycle, I would say. Jason, you probably know about, more about this than I do. And then, you know, here we are in the early stage, and it seems like Amazon's pretty open to encouraging this industry. So it'll be interesting to watch to see if Amazon follows that same trend and ultimately starts to squeeze margin out by eliminating those, those middlemen. Yeah, and at the moment, I would say Amazon has the least mature tools for advertising. So it's even more important that, that uh, agencies sort of fill in that gap. But as the tool sets get better, um, like it, it becomes much more viable to, to uh, eliminate those middlemen. Question number three, and give me a time check, Jason. How are we doing? Yep. We are uh, 53 minutes into the show. So we got about seven minutes left. All right. Let's try to get these two done quick. Um, That's uh, our specialty. All right. Yeah. Well, this I'm worried because this one has the word personalization and that usually set, triggers you. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> uh, this is um, from Facebook and it's Ben Cates. Uh, how will the CDP change in the next three years and how does personalization continue to evolve? 
Thanks for all your time and energy on the show. Ben from Compass Red in Philadelphia. I don't even know what a CDP is, so I'm going to kick that uh, one right over uh, to you. Yeah, so I'm assuming like there's lots of acronyms uh, and some of them uh, have multiple meanings. I'm assuming he means customer data platform, which uh, ties in with the personalization. Um, so there's an alphabet soup of all these uh, systems that a business might use to track information um, that they use for advertising and marketing purposes and for personalization and customer experience purposes. And so it's sort of the a popular one you hear about um, a few years ago was called the DMP, which was a data management platform. A lot of advertisers that didn't necessarily know the individual audience they were marketing to might use a DMP to keep track of the segments they were they were marketing to. And then sort of an evolution of the DMP is this CDP, which is uh, a database of attributes on individual customers. And customers, a slight misnomer, often that's a prospect, not a customer. So it could be both prospects and customers. Um, so that's, it's a database you would use to keep, keep information about people. Uh, I mean, uh, salesforce.com is, a you know, and all the, all the contact management systems are in some ways, uh, CDPs. There are a bunch of specialty CDPs that, uh, are focused for particular use cases. Um, and in general, uh, how that's going to evolve over the, the next three years, like obviously data gets more important expectations for, for more, uh, personally relevant experiences get more important. And so, uh, all businesses just have to collect and act on data better. Um, a lot of these systems are still designed for a, a single use case now. So they're sort of siloed on one particular thing. And I think over the next three years, uh, they get more generalized and, you know, they, they become a system of record for content that, that uh, uh, gets used in a bunch of different places. So you might use it for your advertising and for your email and for your, uh, on-site personalization platforms and all these sorts of things. Whereas today, uh, e each CDP tends to be optimized for, you know, one or a few particular touch points. So, um, in, uh, in super shorter, I, I feel like that's the evolution. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd throw out is a lot of people that already invested in these platforms are now having to take kind of a step back because, uh, the, the um, privacy um, regulation is getting stronger and a lot of the data that had been previously collected and put in these systems um, hasn't been collected in a way in which the businesses are authorized to use it. So one new new wrinkle in all these platforms is data governance and audit trails and making sure you have, you have permission to use all the individual elements you know about that customer in the way that you're using them. So it, it made the industry industry a heck of a lot more complicated. And when he says how uh, how does personalization continue to evolve, assuming you can get some data to drive it, um, are you a big believer in some of this machine learning AI as being a total game changer here, or or do you think that that's a little bit overdone? I, I well, so I think it's both important, but it, I do think it's overhyped. Um, the like I I don't think just because an experience is personalized, it's better. And so I think if, if your goal is to take an experience that was the same for all your customers and personalize it for each of your customers, that's actually a dumb goal because that doesn't guarantee a better outcome. Like I think the reason you'd want to personalize those experiences is to make the experience more relevant for each customer. And if you, if you happen to have one experience that's relevant for a hundred million customers, uh, as for example, Apple does like knock yourself out. That's awesome. Don't, don't spend the money to, to personalize that for each of those hundred million customers, if one if one one experience works, um, but in many cases you have lots of different shoppers with different mi missions that are in different contexts, and so you need to personalize to make it more relevant. And so, like, if your goal is relevancy, uh, yeah, collect all the data and do what you have to do to get more relevant. If your goal is just to be personalized for the sake of personalization, I I would argue that's that's kind of a silly goal. Um, and, you know, I would argue some of the, the highest value personalization we've already been doing for 10 or 15 years. I mean, the recommendation tiles on Amazon are 35% of all Amazon's revenue. Um, you know, is, is AI and better data making those recommendation uh, tiles better today than they were 10 years ago? Absolutely. But it's, it's evolutionary, not revolutionary. Um, so uh, I think there's places where it's a big deal, but I, I think however big a deal it is, it's overhyped by the vendors right now. Got it. And then our fourth and final question for this installment, don't panic if you submitted a question and we haven't gotten to it. We have uh, a good 
15 more that we'll get to on our next listener question show. This one comes from a longtime listener and uh, guest, Jamie Dooley. Uh, hey, Jason Scott, have you heard any news or updates around quote unquote Amazon singularity, um, which is the, uh, so I think he's making up that name. I've never heard it called that, uh, but there is this combination going on at Amazon between vendor central and seller central. Uh, and he makes a joke that he, he has heard the project's code name is high Brexit, which is a play on, play on the Brexit term. Um, I'll kick off this one and then and kick it over to you. So um, for a long time, Amazon had two ways you interacted with them. Um, and, you know, especially if you're a brand, uh, retailers were always kind of in this third party bucket. Uh, and then uh, if you sold other brands and then uh, brands were in vendor central, the world's all smushed together because every retailer wants to be a brand and every brand wants to be a retailer. Uh, and so what, what's, what's happened is just to give you the slang. So it used to be that if you want to sell in a wholesale relationship with Amazon, you would use this portal called Vendor Central. It, it's very simple. It's essentially kind of, you know, chatting with your buyer and uploading, you know, kind of negotiating and saying, hey, I'm going to send you a hundred widgets and, and this kind of a thing. Um, and then uh, Seller Central is the third party marketplace world. So then Seller Central um, very quickly, you know, got to kind of, I would say, 10 to 20 X functionality of vendor central. So you've got all of FBA in there. You've got the reporting buy box pricing dynamic, this and that. And um, so seller central really got more sophisticated. So, so um, as, as brands kind of came on the scene selling more direct um, they wanted, they kind of had to use vendor central and then they wanted a seller central experience. Um, and then they started to do both, which created this hybrid model that, that we've talked about on the show. And Jamie's kind of an early pioneer of um, from his times at Durrell and, and Keurig. So um, what's happening is Amazon has decided to squish the teams together and really have a central kind of a thing. Um, I think it makes sense, but it's quite painful from what I'm hearing. Um, you know, I, I talk to brands and they literally will talk to three Amazon people and get different answers of should they be one P three B can they three P can they do hybrid? Who are they dealing with? Um, so there's, there seems to be a little period of total chaos over at Amazon uh, around this right now, as best I can tell. Um, so, you know, I do think it's going to reconcile itself. Amazon obviously is very, focused on the consumer experience and will land on a, a great consumer experience. But there is a lot of chaos there. Uh, a good outcropping of this is there's always been three people, three P people that have looked into Vendor Central and said, wow, you know, they have this, um, they have these really cool reports they get around like demographics or customers and what they're searching on. I think they're called ARA reports. And then there's like a premium version of that. Uh, and then there's a couple of ad types that used to be only in there. And then the um, the more enhanced pages on Amazon used to be only available there. So as they're smushing these together, some of that good stuff's coming from 1P over to 3P. 1P people were always like, gosh, I really wish I had more control over my listing. And I, I, you know, I had a lot more dynamic system for this, that, and the other. So a lot of that's coming to them from seller central. So I, I think the, the end game is going to be good. I think we're gonna have to go through a lot of pain to get there. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I would just add a couple of things like er, early on, um, Amazon had, you know, some, some interesting protections in place. If you wanted to be a three P seller on Amazon and therefore, uh, you're using seller central, um, you 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 had to agree to let Amazon uh, uh, buy your product one p if they chose to. So um, they they could essentially kick you off the platform if you if they asked to buy your product first party and and you chose to only sell it third party. Um, the and then they 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 have the flip side. Uh, if you're one p seller on Amazon, you need permission to be a three p seller. So in some cases, vendors that were hybrid sellers had permission. But more often, they were they were one P sellers and three P sellers, and Amazon just didn't notice. And and in a few cases, Amazon noticed and policed it. But more often, Amazon would just let it ride. And so, like uh, you know, some some mergers that have already happened. Those two businesses used to roll up to separate execs and were separate P and Ls at Amazon. Now they roll up to one exec, and it's way less likely that you as a seller are just getting away with it unbeknownst to Amazon. So it. Uh, it's much more likely that Amazon has visibility. Um, and, and, you know, as, as you sort of implied in the question, there's strong rumors out there that the tools will eventually merge. Um, 
the the name for the tool I have heard the most in rumors is Amazon One Vendor. Um, so I don't know if that that ends up being the the universal replacement for Seller Central and Vendor Central. We'll we'll have to see. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, a couple months ago there was a brouhaha. Um, Amazon uh, kind of uh, cold the one P sellers. So they said, Hey, if you're selling, if you're selling us just one P and you're not doing $10 million a year in revenue, um, it probably doesn't make sense for us to keep you as a one P seller. So we're going to shift you off that platform. And the way you should have a relationship with Amazon is three P. So there, there were a bunch of hybrid sellers and small one P sellers that are, you know, getting forced to go to the three P. And, and so, you know, all this stuff is playing out, out simultaneously, but I, I do like Jamie's names. I do think it would be funny if it was uh, high Brexit. Um, and I think uh, given time, that is going to be a good place to end because we have done it again. We have used up our allotted time. Um, we do have a bunch more questions to go to, so we're going to record a, another show here pretty soon and release it in the very near future. There's also some news happening while we're recording the show. Chewy's just uh, did their IPO today. So, um, if you do have any comments or questions about the, the stuff that we did discuss on this show, please jump on a Facebook or Twitter and, and let us know. As always, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love that five-star review. Um, and if we didn't get to your question, uh, keep your eye on the feed. We'll have another show out, uh, super soon, uh, with the, the rest of the questions. Thanks very much. Yeah, without your five-star reviews, we're never going to make it back on to the top 10 podcast list. So we, we really need everyone to step up and leave some reviews so we can be on there for the Mika report next year. Uh, thanks for coming uh, to listen to the show, everyone. Uh, we really appreciate all the questions and engagement out there in the community. Uh, that's what makes it really fun for us. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 